Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. France, December 1503. A young boy is born to a family of decent means. His father was a notary, someone who verifies and certifies legal documents, and whilst the family had historically been Jewish, they'd converted to Catholicism before he was born. Of course, to follow in the footsteps of his family, the boy went to university at the age of 14. That might sound young, but remember, universities back in the day were very different places. He studies all of the basics, grammar, rhetoric, logic. An outbreak of the plague forced his studies to end, but he returned to another university in 1529, after a period of researching to become an apothecary, a producer and seller of medicines. So it was that the boy, now a man, tried to become a doctor, but was expelled for having practiced a manual trade, and for dismissing his fellow doctors. But the would-be doctor did gain some measure of fame for the creation of a rose pill which supposedly protected you from the plague. Whether it worked or not, I would err on the side of not, he did end up gaining several things from it. The first of which were connections to Renaissance thinkers in Italy, and the second was a wife, who he met visiting some fellow thinkers in France. She bore him children, but they all died of what we think was another plague outbreak. All of this talk of plague and plague and death and death must have weighed very heavily on the man, who desperately sought answers for all the suffering he saw around him, all of the uncertainty. What if it was possible, he thought, to have absolute clarity about the world, to know exactly how things would play out? In 1550 he printed an almanac, which strayed from his traditional subject of medicine towards more obscure practices, prophecies and the reading of the stars to see the shape of things to come, to see events before they happen. It's also here that we get his moniker, Latinized from the first time in the form that we know it today, Nostradamus. His birth name was Michel de Nostradam, but as Nostradamus, his almanac was selling like hotcakes. In particular, people very much liked his predictions. It proved so popular that he resolved to produce at least one new almanac every year. Together, his works contain over 6,000 predictions about the future, as well as 11 annual calendars. These were so that the nobility of the day could mark predictions against them and check their own horoscopes. As his predictions got more and more famous, he got more and more work making bespoke horoscopes for the nobility of Europe, and he started facing more and more backlash. Between writing in a form of code, mixing up the languages he used, and straight up refusing to put dates on some of his predictions, he was able to say one step ahead of those who called him a fake at best, and a man in league with the devil at worst. A serious accusation back then. His biggest break came when Catherine de Medici, a member of the supremely powerful Medici dynasty and the wife of the King of France, summoned him to her court for a royal position, and to make predictions for herself and her children. For a while, Nostradamus feared his own execution, but despite one stay of imprisonment for breaking an ordinance, the Inquisition found very little evidence to actually catch him on. Besides, astrology and prophecy weren't strictly heretical, depending on your interpretation of the Bible, it was more the use of magic to do so that was heresy. So in reality, Nostradamus wasn't towing as fine a line as he may have felt he was. In the end, Nostradamus died of edema caused by his terrible gout. Not a very dignified way to go, but he did apparently predict his own death. 
one day in advance. Not that impressive, but it's something, I guess. Anyway, Nostradamus dies in 1566 at the age of 63. Decent innings for a man of the Renaissance. How did he make his predictions, you may ask? Well, it was a complicated task. He claimed to base his predictions on two things, historical precedent and judicial astrology, the study of the motions of heavenly bodies. Now, astrology isn't real science. Astronomy is, but astrology is not. Modern research suggests that a lot of his predictions are either taken from earlier sources, adapted or plagiarized wholesale, but with historical precedents added to give it a more realistic flavor. To his own brief credit, Nostradamus did reject the label prophet in his own lifetime, not wanting to take such a lofty title. One big source he lifted from was a prophetic text called the Mirabilis Liber, an anonymous compilation of various Christian saints' predictions published in 1522. But then why do we still know of him today? Why do we care about Nostradamus, know his name, some middling physician from the Renaissance who almost sort of got in trouble with the Inquisition a couple of times? Well, because of his predictions. Whilst he himself was pleased with most of his work, particularly his medical research, it's only really his predictions that have survived into the modern day. Most of his predictions surrounded wars, natural disasters, plagues, murders, that kind of thing. All of them went undated, and most were taken, in some form or another, from the Mirabilis Liber. Some are as small as a specific person, others are so large that they span entire countries. Some authors claim that he predicted. The Great Fire of London, Napoleon and the French Revolution, World War I, World War II and the rise of fascism, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Apollo 11 moon landings, the Challenger spaceship disaster, the death of Princess Diana and 9-11. Wow, talented guy. Maybe he was a prophet. Or maybe not. You see, there's a trick to this, a turn of a screw that can set everything else into motion. Whilst some would claim they have powers beyond this realm, it's all really just a cunning mummer's dance. Today on Demystified's second season of Human Mysteries, we tackle a big one. People who can claim that they can see the future. So, diving first into a big topic. I know, and to save time in the intro, I cut it down so we're going to have more time for the topic at hand. I'm not going to go into much more specific detail about Nostradamus because most or all psychics or millenarians or anyone who says they can see the future use one of a grab bag of a few kinds of tricks to convince people that they really can do so, and we're going to be discussing that as well as some examples of it. And this stuff works. Have you guys ever heard of Y2K? Maybe the Gen Alphas or the younger Gen Zs won't have heard of it, but people in my generation, I'm Generation Z, just the top end of it, uh, millennials and people above that, will remember it as an event where people thought that the world was going to end in the year 2000. People genuinely sold their entire lives to hide in bunkers because they thought that the world was going to end. It didn't. We just got hairstyles that look very, very dated. Ugh, frosted tips. And new metal. Maybe the world should have ended. But apart from some regrettable trends, the world didn't end. But people did upend their lives because they thought that it would. I tend to take the pen and Teller approach to this kind of thing. I'll elaborate more on that in our third section. But in general, just so you know my opinion going into this, 
I find astrologers to at best be a little bit gauche, and at worst to be a form of predator. Like psychics or mediums, they prey on people's insecurities to sell them nothing. The worst part of it is, it's not even just a reassurance that you're selling someone, it's a promise. And people act on promises because of our desire to trust other people. So when you say to someone, oh yes, in your future, I see great fortune in a game of chance, they might actually go and bet the house on black and lose. Is it their fault for being so naive to believe you, or is it your fault for passing something off of nothing as a real power? So, to absolutely nobody's surprise, I don't believe that people can predict the future, or I should say, nobody can predict it with certainty or accuracy. On the show I do for Wizard Radio, the station that's currently hosting Demystified, as part of my discussion on current affairs, I predicted the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. I staked my odds on Diamond Joe and he won. Huzzah, I'm the next Nostradamus. Of course, I'm joking, but I got that right, didn't I? Doesn't that contradict my thesis statement that the future can't be predicted? Well, not really, because when I made that prediction, I caveated it by saying it's just a prediction and that predictions have been wrong before. I've been wrong before. I was very surprised by the outcome of the Brexit vote. I do believe that we can have a good go at estimating what the future would be like. Scientists can use data to project very accurate models. But what I mean to get across is that when I say that people can't predict the future, I don't mean in terms of scientists using data to make models for how the future might look because of two things. Firstly, science uses evidence. Secondly, science adjusts its beliefs based on new evidence. But the key to a prediction is that you don't adjust it. You make it and it sticks. Nothing but net. And that's the crux of the thing, what we'll be getting into today. Examples throughout history of famous predictions made by people. I'm going to be real, a lot of it is going to be dunking on people who got it wrong, but we're also going to have examples of some of those predictions that are yet to play out. And we'll see how they go. So we could go into the history of people trying to see the future, but we'd be here all day because it goes back as far as we do. All you have to know is that people have been doing it since the beginning of time, and of course we have. Like I said in the intro, life is chaos and uncertainty. The world is a meaningless void and we're all swinging in the balance on a pendulum over which we have no control. The fact of the matter is, humans look for meaning in a world that, from an objective standpoint, often seems to have none. For some, this is just fine. We can make our own meaning and find our own happiness and fulfillment. But rather than so, it won't do. If there's no meaning, why do bad things happen? Why is the world cruel or unfair? It must have a meaning. So we look for it wherever we can find it. We look for some sort of plan. Now, that plan doesn't have to be divine. It often is for predictions, but it doesn't have to be. So some look to divine texts. The Book of Revelations is a big favourite for hints of what the future might hold. Some look to supposedly ancient wisdom in a very condescending post-colonial sort of thing. What those ancients knew that we've lost through their dire predictions. But at the end of the day, what's essential to a prediction is some sort of plan. This is because predicting the future comes down to a philosophical idea called determinism. Simply put, determinism is the idea that all events in the future, and to an extent everything that's ever happened, is in some way or another determined. Some say it's due to fluctuations that we can't see at a microscopic or atomic level that determine everything that happens. Others say that a divinely ordained plan is playing out that our mortal selves have no say in. But if people have the power to change the future, 
then it can't be predicted with certainty. Thus a prophet or soothsayer can't claim an absolute monopoly on knowing the future. So, whilst some who predict the future will take a more laissez-faire attitude to the idea of determinism versus free will, in general, those who claim absolute prediction will, by necessity, tend to fall on the determinist side. An example of the laissez-faire prediction attitude might be Vikings. They believed that the Norns wove men's fates, but since you couldn't know your fate, you might as well do whatever you wanted. For instance, if you hid from battle on the day you were fated to die, hiding wouldn't save you from death, it would save you from death in battle. You're still free to fight or hide, but your death is fated. An example of the latter kind of determinism would be the belief of the Calvinists, a Christian denomination who believe that those who will enter heaven on Judgment Day have already been chosen before they were born. Nothing that you do has any impact on your chance at salvation, and most people are sinners. You are damned or saved from the beginning. God's mercy is specifically selected, and only a choice few, referred to as the elect, will receive it. The idea is that you must live as though you are the elect, because only somebody who is pure of heart would be chosen by God in the first place. But I think you can see the kind of obvious fault in the logic there. I don't buy much into ideas like Calvinism. So, that's our starting point for analysis here. In order to streamline things, we're not looking at woolly, generic predictions about the future, and so this is where we ditch Nostradamus. Yeah, sorry Nostradamus. You see, the reason as to why so many thought him so wise was in actuality many of his predictions are so hilariously vague you could apply them to just about anything that happened in the last 500 years. The way Nostradamus was using historical text and existing predictions is kind of like a thing psychics do called hot reading where one claiming psychic powers actually knows information ahead of time and uses it to make statements that seem to imply a form of precognition. Nah, Nostradamus just knew that there's nothing new under the sun, and a broken clock strikes right twice a day. If you predict a great war will happen, that's going to be a winner, because guess what? Loads of great wars had happened by the time of Nostradamus. The Crusades, the Hundred Years' War, all of the wars of the Bronze Age, from the Siege of Troy to the Greco-Persian Wars to the conquests of Rome, the wars with the Moors in Spain, the wars with the Vikings, those are just a few I can think of off the top of my head that Nostradamus would have had in his own cultural periphery. Yeah, Nostradamus didn't actually make all that many specific predictions. Whether it was just to get around the demands of the Inquisition or not, I couldn't say, but the fact that he never pinned specific dates on his predictions makes him a little bit silly, if you think about it. They might never happen, but as time is, practically speaking, infinite, they will happen somewhere eventually. Monkey and typewriter. The skeptic James Randi put it in the best terms. It's what's called post-diction, retroactive clairvoyance, applying meaning to events that, when looked at by themselves, have no meaning in and of themselves. This even applies to the few predictions that do have specific dates, and many of the predictions, when analysed in the 1980s by French scholars, were found to be not even having been written by Nostradamus himself. Here, I quote Peter Le Mazier in his 2010, Nostradamus, Bibliomancer, the man, the myth, the truth. Quote, In 1727, in October, the king of Persia shall be captured by those of Egypt, a prophecy that has as ever been interpreted retrospectively in the light of later events in this case, as though it presaged the known peace treaty between the Ottoman Empire and Persia of that year. Egypt was also an important Ottoman territory at this time. Similarly, Nostradamus's notorious 1999 prophecy at X72, see Nostradamus in popular culture, 
describes no events that commentators have succeeded in identifying either before or since, other than by twisting the words to fit whichever of the many contradictory happenings they claim as hits. End quote. But let's look at some of the bigger predictions commonly attributed to Nostradamus. First off, the biggest one, 9-11. Yep, many people claim that Nostradamus predicted the terrorist attacks that would change the world forever. So, a key thing to know about Nostradamus is his writing is done in what's called quatrains, lines of sets of four. Here are the ones that pertain to this event, typically chosen. And here I use translations. Quote, Five and forty degrees the sky shall burn. To the great new city shall the fire draw nigh. With vehemence the flames shall spread and churn, when with the Normans they conclusions try. Earth-shaking fires from the world's centre roar. Around new city is the earth a quiver. Two nobles long shall wage a fruitless war. The nymph of sprigs pour forth a new red river. End quote. A lot to unpack there, for sure. So, some have suggested... 5 and 40 degrees represents New York, 4047 latitude. Some claim 40.5 is the prediction of Nostradamus, even though at that time the decimal point hadn't been used in Europe. Then there's the line about the new city. Clearly New York, right? Well, no. In other predictions of Nostradamus, where he uses the term new city, it gets interpreted as Naples, Napoli, or Neapolis, new city. When the attacks happened in New York, New York wasn't a new city, and when the prediction was made, it hadn't been founded yet. Now, Milton Keynes, founded in 1967 in England, that could be considered a new city to the year 2001, but New York, I don't think, could be. And the line about the Normans? Nobody ever gets to fit that into 9-11. Most scholars consider it instead to be a prophecy expecting that some lineage of Northmen, maybe Normans, maybe Vikings, would invade Italy, as the original Normans had done between the 800s and the 1100s. Then comes a translation quibble, that line about waging a fruitless war. Ah, sounds clever, doesn't it? Could refer to the wars in the Middle East. Would more likely refer to the original translation of that idiom, to make war on the rocks, referring to Naples's proximity to volcanic activity. Neapolis, the new city. So there you have it. Pretty much all of his other so-called predictions follow that pattern. Vague lines that generally reference historical events but keep it vague enough so that you could apply it to any situation. Here's an example. We could apply that quatrain, or set of quatrains, to the burning of Washington DC in the War of 1812. A new city being set aflame, the Normans trying conclusions representing the US invasion of Canada and therefore Quebec and therefore the French and therefore the Normans, the two nobles waging fruitless war referring to the peace settlement that resulted in basically no changes. Maybe that sounds tenuous, but that's the point I'm trying to make. So, that does it for Nostradamus. What about the Mayans? Ah, oh, we all remember that, don't we? All those people who thought, and that the movie was made about, that the world was going to end in 2012. Wasn't that their prediction? No. So, the basic idea was this. The Mayans, like many Central American civilizations, including the Aztec and the Navajo, believed that the world worked in cycles. There had been previous worlds, and there would be future ones, with each one starting and ending. 
The Aztecs particularly believed that this was the fifth world, with four prior worlds ending because no god could adequately fulfill the role of the sun god, and their squabbling destroyed the prior four worlds. This world was the last one, they thought, hence the need for human sacrifice to stop the sun from dying and thus the whole world ending forever. The Hopi, on the other hand, believed that we were in the fourth world, and on the cusp of the fifth world, the Navajo thought that this world was the fifth, but there were also other worlds alongside ours. So, with this background, many Mesoamerican pre-Columbian religions believed in cyclical worlds that had and could end. The Mayan calendar works in cycles as well, the longest of which was called an Alantun, worth about 63 million solar years in their Longcan calendar, but the focus was on a unit called the Bucktoon, worth about 394 years. Now, for some reason, a lot of Mayan calendars stopped recording at or just past the 13th Bucktoon, which taking into account the Mayan year of creation fell on December of 2012, often rendered as December 21st, 2012. To clarify, very few, if any, Mayan sources specified that anything would happen at the end of the 13th Bucktoon. Some calendars and stilles mention an investiture of some kind, but the Mayans didn't use the Long Count calendar prophetically. So, in the Mayan mythology, our world is the fourth world. The previous worlds ended after the 13th Bucktoon, thus our world will end too, on December 21st, 2012, 5,125 years after the beginning of the world, which the Maya placed around the 11th of August, 3104 BC. But as you can probably tell, the world didn't end, so what happened? Well, misunderstanding and a lack of cultural context. Basically, it's a lack of the understanding of how the Maya viewed the world. Many thought, because their world had ended and was predicted to end so many times that they would be abreast of the potential of another ending of the world, but that's the wrong way to look at it. Journalist Eric Vance paraphrased archaeologist William Saturno in National Geographic as saying, quote, The ancient Maya predicted that the world would continue that 7,000 years from now, things would be exactly like this. We keep looking for endings. The Maya were looking for a guarantee that nothing would change. It's an entirely different mindset. End quote. Yes, the Maya thought that the world could end, but they were counting on it not to end. Just because the previous world had ended after the 13th Bakhtu, there's no reason that this one would. So the end of the calendar didn't mark the end of the world. Oftentimes, they just mark when they stop making the calendars. We've specifically talked in previous episodes on this show about the supposed collapse of the Maya, and whilst the Maya live and breathe today, they've long since stopped using the long count calendar. So, no duh that we don't have any new Bakhtuns to measure. So, Nostradamus is a bust and 2012 is a bust. Next up, millenarianism, the belief that number 1000, or derivatives therein, is sacred and thus predictive of the ending of the world. It underpinned beliefs in the end of the world around the year 1000 AD, and whilst reports of riots in the streets were not as substantiated historically, there is evidence that some, including potentially even Pope Sylvester II himself, thought that the year 1000 would bring Judgment Day. The astute among you will remember Y2K, the belief that, due either to numerical errors on computers or Christian theology, that the world would end on January 1st, 2000. That didn't happen. A lot of people looked very silly. But religious theology is tricky to get right. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, who I think we've talked about before, predicted that the world would end in 2010. Ten years ago. I remember 2010. I was just starting high school. Rasputin, shout out to my demystified bonus listeners, thought that 2013 would mark the end of the world. That was the year Frozen came out, so I'm 
betting plenty of parents wished the world had ended that year as well. Harold Camping was a Christian theologist who had the distinction of getting it wrong not once, but twice. First, he said the world would end on May 21st, 2011, but then he changed it, after the fact of course, to October 21st, 2011. After that, his ministry had serious words with him and he retired to do more scriptural study. He left a lot of people high and dry, including one poor old man who was humiliated on the news as he confidently awaited the end of the world at noon and was left at five minutes past noon, dumbfounded, surrounded by people mocking him and a news anchor asking him what happened, with almost no money in his bank account. He had donated it all to Harold Camping's ministry. That, I hope you can see, is why it makes me so mad when people claim completely that they can predict the future. Sure, it may seem harmless enough, but it's all well and fine for some middle-aged, middle-class Bible-study mum to have her guesses at Christian numerology or some fat cat televangelist to sit in his private jet-making predictions, but real and vulnerable people suffer when they get duped. And I will put my atheistic foot down and say it, it is dupingdom. You can believe whatever you like about the supernatural or the metaphysical in your own time. But the minute you ask for someone else's money to make things happen, you're not preaching, you're selling. And when you sell, you're accountable for the product you sell. And if you're swindling a grieving mother or a poor old man, I'm going to get angry at that. And I think anyone would, reasonably speaking. But what about those predictions yet to come? Well, Kent Hovind, a tax-protesting evangelist and young earth creationist, stated that his, quote, most likely prediction for the end of the world is 2028. I'll be 31 in 2028. Oh, God, just saying that makes me feel old. Let's hope y'all get to hear Demystified episode whatever it is then. So that's a whole bunch of people who make grand predictions about things. Oftentimes, the world ending, but otherwise just generally bad things happening. Predictions rarely concern good things, unless you consider the rapture a good thing, or something, because it doesn't sell as well. There have been utopian predictions, of course. Socialist thinker Charles Fourier famously thought that, once equality amongst all people had been achieved, the sea would literally lose its salinity and turn into lemonade. Fourier also predicted climate change, but framed it as a good thing. How the North Pole would be as balmy as the Mediterranean. Well, you were half right, Mr. Fourier, but I doubt you would enjoy the melting ice caps quite as much as you thought you would. And hey, you can chuck those two in the category of predictions yet to come. We could talk about how all these predictions are made, but it really is all just guesswork and hokum. Or is it? Now, I'm not going to validate things like numerology or astrology by explaining how they work, because it'd be like explaining how magic works. You need to believe in the supernatural aspect in order to even consider it as magic. Take, for instance, the infamous feud between Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle. Now, the feud started when Conan Doyle, who was a pen pal of Houdini, asked to use his powers of deduction on Houdini's tricks to work out how they were done. When Houdini did the trick and Conan Doyle couldn't work it out, Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So Conan Doyle concluded that Harry Houdini was a real magician who could do real magic. Houdini balked at this. He was the world's foremost skeptic, who hated the idea of people thinking he could do magic because he had a position, I suppose, sort of similar to me. He thought that it was predatory to pretend that you can do real magic and swindle people out of their money. 
but Arthur Conan Doyle refused to accept any other explanation. His science of deduction hadn't been able to work it out, which must mean, whatever remains must be the truth, Harry Houdini is a real wizard. Then there was a botched seance where Conan Doyle's wife claimed Houdini's mother was speaking to them, even though she addressed him by his stage name, and his mother didn't speak English. Whoopsie. But what I want to impart is that we've got your two perspectives on that kind of pseudoscience. You've got the people who believe it works, and the people who don't. If you're in the latter category like me, I can explain how it supposedly works, but you're not going to be satisfied, because you know it's all just smoke and mirrors, words that have no meanings. Oh yes, well the energies from Jupiter combine with Mars in conjunction, making those born under Sagittarius lucky. What energies? How do the planets aligning move those energies? Why can't scientists detect these energies? Why are your predictions not always right if it's such a rigorous science? But then there are those in the other category, those who would believe that. And I'm not calling them stupid. It's very important that you understand that. But it is a flawed way of interpreting the information. Conan Doyle, having used his science of deduction to actually solve real crimes, yes, he did do that, had unlimited faith in it. So when it couldn't explain a cleverly concealed magic trick done by an expert, his worldview couldn't adjust. He defaulted to the idea that magic did it. And his brain was so keen to protect its own worldview that it couldn't see reason. So when we discuss the methodology of these predictions, it's not worth looking at magic or numerology or astrology or Mayan calendars or the Book of Revelations, because you can use anything to make a prediction. Now, what's worth discussing is that those techniques that people use, it's particularly prized among those who write horoscopes, the technique of making predictions vague but believable. Now, from a psychological point of view, double-blind testing was done and determined that using a horoscope is as accurate a way to predict someone's traits or personality as randomly guessing. From as scientific a point of view as possible, Stars are just luminous balls of gas that are compressed under their own gravity and conduct nuclear fusion. None of this shows in any way how horoscopes could predict anything. If anything, it shows that they can't. Yet people write horoscopes and people read them, and some people believe them. They use their lucky numbers to pick lottery tickets. They buy tacky birthstones to bring good energy. So whilst we can talk of houses or angels or the zodiac or the planes or the spheres, the science shows that none of that matters. You may as well just do it randomly. So why do the predictions look so right sometimes? Well, it's all a clever exercise in creative writing. So let's use the example of cold reading. We mentioned hot reading earlier. Cold reading is mainly used by psychics, but for our examples of horoscopes, it does kind of work in a general sense. The first thing to note about cold reading, which is the act of finding out information about someone without knowing it ahead of time by using those sorts of vague statements, is something called the Forer effect, the tendency for people to fill in the blanks with something that pertains to themselves. Also called the Barnum effect, after American showman P.T. Barnum, a Barnum statement is one that seems specific, but is actually extremely general. In a psychic reading, the medium can even bully a subject into agreeing with a Barnum statement by just repeating it over and over and over again, thereby convincing the subject that they are repressing the idea. Examples of Barnum statements include things like this. You're insecure sometimes, especially around new people. You had an accident as a child. 
involving fire. You had an accident as a child involving water. You had a father figure who had some chest problems. You had a mother figure. There was a blackness in their body, a cancer. Called shotgunning, the repeated asking of these vague questions or statements can elicit responses due to the Ferrer effect. If you think a crowd of people at a televised psychic reading and they're saying, I've got a J name with a pain in his chest, a man, a man with a J name and a pain in his chest, the odds of any male friend, relative or co-worker with a name beginning with J, John, James and Jack are three of the most common names in the entire world, having a chest pain, as older men can be prone to heart problems, when you combine all of those factors together and you take into account a crowd of people, for instance, at a psychic reading or buying horoscopes in a newspaper, the odds of those things lining up are very likely. Same with the woman who had the blackness in her body. Many women suffer breast cancer. The accidents involving fire and water, I had both as a kid. One time I was burnt on my leg in a quad biking accident, and another time a family friend accidentally drove into an overflooded river whilst trying to ford it on an off-roading trip. Both times, I was fine. Neither incident has impacted me in any serious way, they're just fun stories to tell. But just see how I could relate those extremely general statements to my life in particular. Even better is the so-called rainbow ruse. Here, you attribute a paradoxical statement to someone, having them one quality, while simultaneously possessing the opposite quality. Here's an example of a rainbow ruse. You're a very kind and considerate person, but when someone does something to break your trust, you often feel a deep-seated anger or resentment. No duh. But in this way, the statement attracts those with hot tempers and those who are usually more reserved, because it's a statement that applies to both. So no matter what mood you're in, no matter who you are, the psychic can see into your soul. Because you're a person. So in this episode, we've covered a bunch of topics. People who try to predict the future, those who try and scam people by saying that they can read their futures or see their pasts. At the end of the day, it all falls under one umbrella type of con game. The one where you make a vague statement and, due to things like the Ferrer effect, people link it to themselves. And that applies to your end of the world theories too, doesn't it? Look at the people predicting the end of the world. They're always part of the chosen group, aren't they? You never see... Zoroastrian numerologists coming out doomsaying that it's the Seventh-day Adventists who've got it right, and that they're the ones who are doomed. You did get people saying that the Mayans predicted that we'd all be fit, but remember the movie 2012 showed the protagonists surviving, didn't they? We all like to fantasise about what will happen when our world ends. Sometimes, especially recently, it feels like it might. But it always has felt like that. When the Mongols sacked Baghdad, that must have seemed like the end of days for them. It brought a civilization to its knees. When the Black Plague killed a third of the population of Europe, one in three people, many at the time thought that it was the end of the world. And in particular, with the example of the Europeans arriving in Australia, the Aborigines, who had never seen these strange people before, with a language they didn't understand, impossibly advanced weapons and diseases to which they had no immunity, they must have seemed like conquerors from another world. And that specific colonization inspired the staunch anti-imperialist H.G. Wells to write 
The War of the Worlds, one of the most famous science fiction books of all time and a personal favourite of mine, where the British are invaded by Martians. Bows and arrows against the lightning. My point is, at every major juncture in history, there has been a crowd who have decided, the game's up. Cash in the chips, boys. It's all over. The world's ending. But then the sun rises and the world keeps turning and the new day dawns and we're all still here. You can't predict the future. Sure, you can predict long-scale events. On that list of predictions of the end of the world yet to come, I actually shifted around the balancing of this episode because a lot of them were things like in the year one million, when a volcanic super eruption will cause a possibly decades-long volcanic winter. In the year 100 million, we're going to be hit by another asteroid the size of the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. Between the years 1 and 5 billion, the sun will turn into a red giant and swallow the earth. And after that, we don't really know. Some people think that 22 billion years from now, the universe will collapse in on itself and explode out again. Others think that we're just going to keep going. Until that's 10 to the power of 100 years from now, that's 10 times itself 100 times. A million is 10 to the power of 6, for reference. In that year, the world will run out of energy. The heat death of the universe. Everything goes cold and dark forever. But that's super long term, and those end game predictions we don't know will happen. It's speculation. It's based on evidence and data and modelling, for definite. But it is speculation, because we could be hit by a gamma ray or an asteroid tomorrow, be wiped out to a man and his dog. So we don't know. And there's no way to know. Since time immemorial, mankind has tried to control what we can't. The weather, the seasons, the earth, the seas, animals, other people. But most of all, time. We make calendars, we make predictions to tell ourselves that someday things will all add up. We'll get a satisfying conclusion to our story. It all goes back to that thing that I've mentioned many times on this podcast. People like narrative. They like stories. And there ain't no stories except the ones we make and tell ourselves. But that's how the Ferrer effect gets you. You hear the story and you clamor to make yourself the protagonist, even when the story's not a nice one. That's why a lot of people believe in being haunted by ghosts or being cursed or being destined for something bad even though that's not healthy and can make you very miserable, they would rather be the protagonist in a horror story than one of seven billion characters in a show that doesn't exist. Somehow, it's easier to deal with. It's like how the TV show adaptation of Game of Thrones ran into that problem of how in real life characters don't get satisfying ends to their stories. The real world doesn't run on a narrative and you can't predict it. After four or five seasons, there's no narrative tension because... Anything can happen. There's no consistency, no rules. Why care about any of the characters or anything on the show when, really, anything could happen? So we write these stories for ourselves, and when some person writes a horoscope, whether or not the writer themselves even believes it, the person reading it is inclined to believe it, because it makes them a character in a story, and they've been given a Cliff Notes version of the script. It's like an improv show. You've got the bare bones of a script, but you can start improvising, and it doesn't matter because if things go off your plan, there's still a script. You will get what I'm saying, right? I've said it many times in different ways. It's just another fascinating example of that. No one has ever been able to predict the future. And you want to know how I know for definite? 
1992, American political scientist Francis Fukuyama published one of the most famous essays and later books in all of history, The End of History and the Last Man. In it, he argued that when the Soviet Union collapsed, the West had won the ideological war, and that over time all countries would become Western-style liberal democracies, and that the liberal democracy was the final form of human civilization. Communists disagree. Even after the failure of the Soviet Union, or China, or Vietnam, or Cambodia, or Laos, or Angola, or Cuba, or Nicaragua to spark a global revolution, they still believe that a global revolution will come and bring about a stateless society. No countries, no classes. Religious fundamentalists disagree. Governments don't matter when the end of days is going to happen. Authoritarians disagree. Liberal democracy is a Western invention, they say. We have no need for human rights. Fukuyama, despite his predictions not coming to pass yet, still believes that he is right, just that it's taking longer than he expected. So what can we make of that example? Well, maybe Fukuyama is right, but at this point it's taking so long that even if it did happen tomorrow, if every autocracy in the world collapsed and we all unite under the banner of a global, united or separate band of liberal democracies, we'd still say he didn't get it exactly right. When he was writing in 1992, the Soviet Union, the existential enemy of democracy and freedom, had collapsed. The Eastern Bloc was liberalizing, China was reforming and opening, so they thought. It really did seem like that was going to happen. And then it didn't. So what's the lesson for the day? Well, don't put all your chips on Black 35. You can make predictions about the future. Indeed, planning your life relies on it to an extent. But don't bet the house on one specific prediction, because nobody... Whoever made a habit of that ever turned up a winner. And please, whatever you do, don't scam people using basic trickery to exploit their human nature to make a quick buck. Tim Minchin said it best at side of the argument, the famous Australian comedian singer-songwriter. Remember that story of the old man who gave all his money to the end of the world church only to be left high and dry because they spent all of his money on bumper stickers and the world didn't end? What about mediums who charge a pretty penny for readings with grieving families who just want to know if grandma made it? As Tim Mitchin said, lying to some crying woman whose child is on the other side. I was researching into people that wrote horoscopes, and I saw one person who claimed that there was a difference between people who made stuff up and legitimate astrology. And they said that they'd written personal horoscopes for a nominal fee for individual customers. That doesn't sound suspicious at all. So if you want to break out the tarot cards and have some fun, go for it. Be my guest. Knock yourself out. Like I always say, I'm not going to challenge anyone's opinion on the metaphysical, because I also don't know. But the moment you ask someone for that fee, for that money to read their stars for them, that's when I have the problem. Because again, it can start innocent, but it can easily spiral into manipulating people's most base instincts and unconscious mental tendencies for personal gain, which in my opinion is not a very morally sound thing to play a trade at. But with that personal thesis statement, we close the book, for now at least, on those who have claimed to predict the future. Join us next time for the season finale of Demystified Season 2, Human Mysteries. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod and please tell your friends. It's really going to help us out. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.